But thank you very much, Jane, and thank you all, and uh, thank you, organizers, for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I, I uh, used to live in Oxford for several years, so uh, it's still familiar, and I feel at home. Um, and uh, I'd like uh, to say a few words about this anthology that came out um, in Hebrew. Um, it's, uh, it, came, it came out in, uh, in Israel, and that seems to me to be absolutely important from a cultural uh, point of view. Uh, the enterprise, my enterprise, has taken, um, I, I would say, five years. Now, as it happens, when I went back to Israel, it wasn't for that. Um, I went back because the, the circumstances were such uh, that I went back. Uh, but in the meantime, this was um, um, offered uh, the opportunity to make a comprehensive translation of uh, Sufi texts into Hebrew. Um, and I was given uh, freedom by the publisher, who is, by the way, the uh, publishing house of the Tel Aviv University, so it's a kind of academic uh, um, publishing house, and I was given the freedom to choose what I wanted, to lay out the book as I wanted, and what came out of it. And I'm saying it, I know I have to be modest and, and hide, but this seems to me to be beyond me, uh, the fact that there is now in Israel um, a comprehensive book in Hebrew about the mystical tradition of Islam. And when I say comprehensive, I mean that it, uh, it covers, it's not historical and it's not a research. Um, it's an anthology, uh, but it's really aimed, um, it's done with the intention that people should know even how to pronounce the names of the Sufi protagonists in a proper way and not just mess, mess around. And uh, since, of course, I don't need to go into the politics of, uh, or the sociology of knowledge or whatever, but it feels like an important um, uh, thing uh, to uh, be able to have done uh, in Israel. So I, I'd like to show you this, and I also uh, need to consult it because some of the passages that I'm going to refer to, I'll have to translate sort of... Uh, as uh, we go uh, along. Now, having said all that, I'd also like to say something about my feelings so far with listening to three very rich and enriching um, talks um, this morning and thinking or, or, or uh, realizing uh, even more poignantly than I had realized before um, the, the phenomenon of Ibn Arabi. Um, by this I mean something like that. Um, there are in the history of uh, humanity people who had the ambition of presenting a theory of all. You know, one of them, for example, in our own days is Einstein. And I see Ibn Arabi on that scale. I mean, the man had, I don't say that he managed to present the uh, theory of all, but I think he had this ambition 
or that he had this view. Now I'm saying this because really his philosophical ideas are very minimal. That might be, that might be surprising to you, you know. And it's, it's a mystery because uh, Stephen was saying that the conferences, the symposia have been going on for uh, 25 years. If you think that in a, each symposium maybe eight or ten people spoke. So we have about two, over 200 people speaking on different aspects of Ibn Arabi and it's still going strong. They haven't exhausted uh, everything that has to be done and yet... I do insist, at least from my perspective, that philosophically speaking, his, idea can be, his ideas can be narrowed down to very few, to very, very few. But at the same time, I think the same can be said also about Einstein. But from, that, uh, from these few principles or philosophical principles, the theory of all can be investigated. Now, it's also um, connected with the uh, idea of the Qur'an and with language. The Qur'an being kalamullah, the speech of God. So this, the, 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 the spoken or the written word, the linguistical aspect of existence, are extraordinarily important, not only by way of commenting, commenting on this verse or that verse or negotiating about how to interpret a, a phrase, but really seeing the Qur'an as the blueprint of all there is. And if one thinks, and, 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 and I'm absolutely um, uh, convinced that this is how uh, Ibn Arabi sees the Qur'an, uh, it's a blueprint. If you know how to decode this blueprint, you know the secrets of existence. And it's born down to language, and it's born down to letters, because letters are the building blocks of existence. Now, he, Ibn Arabi was not the first one to say that. Before him, there was Ibn Masarra, an Andalusian mystic philosopher from the 10th century, who said exactly that, and Ibn Arabi um, quotes him uh, in his writing. And it's also um, in other traditions, like, for example, in the Jewish mystical tradition and in Gnostic mystery, in some aspects of uh, Gnostic uh, traditions, that the building blocks of existence are letters. And so that our consciousness and existence are connected with words. And, and um, because the Qur'an is the, the word of God, I mean, this is the ultimate presentation in human language of the secrets of everything that there is. So uh, I know that these are very general things, and I'm not going to talk about that, because I do want to talk about um, um, Ibn Arabi's ethics. But I think that is connected also with the idea of multiplicity and of the fact that there are so many people talking about so many themes and will talk about so many themes in Ibn, in Ibn Arabi because everything, all and everything is, should be there. Should be there in, in this compendium which, you know, I, 
I like the Futuhat al makiyah other people like to work more on the Fusus, but it doesn't matter really. And there are also short pieces of writing in everything that he, uh, that Ibn Arabi wrote. It boils down to that kind of uh, concept. Everything is there if we know how to decipher the language of the Quran, the language of uh, uh, God. And I do emphasize that it's not interpret, it's decipher. So things are connected. Interpretation is one thing and decoding is a different thing. Um, so uh, that's one thing. Also, another thing that sort of became clear to me while I was listening to the previous uh, speakers was the fact that uh, you can take Ibn Arabi from different points of view. You can, like he himself says about etikadat, about, uh, uh, about um, uh, beliefs or, or creeds that people have. There are as many creeds as there are people, or each one makes out their own particular understanding in, in a creed, in an aqidah, in an itikad. Okay? I think the same can be said about Ibn Arabi. You know, there are so many people who have studied him, and he can be taken. I mean, this, this uh, um, um, what do you call the, the, the wool that you want to unravel? sort of a kind of uh, um, a ball of wool that you, you can unravel from different strands, from different, uh, different positions. So what I'm going to say is really my um, way of understanding or the, way, the, the angle from where I come to understand Ibn Arabi. And I come to understand him from the angle of multiplicity, not from the angle of oneness. And this is not to say that he doesn't have oneness. Of course he has. And the whole thing is about multiplicity in oneness. But I feel and I think that that's my um, understanding when I read him that his um, interest in details, in very minute particles, in very little entities, is as important as, and as central as his interest in this vast oneness of being, which is, by the way, as we probably know, is not something, is not, uh, he didn't coin this term, the oneness of being, but it can be borne out from what he wrote. But I'd like to throw light on the details, on the multiplicity. Because without this, my feeling is that we cannot really come to grips with his idea of ethics, of this how do we, how are we one to another, I mean, all, all these things. Now, of course, one can say many things about that, and one can say basically uh, that uh, even Arabi's understanding of the act of creation is um, that the act of creation was done out of tremendous mercy. I mean, uh, I think Cecilia was speaking about it earlier, about nafas rahman I mean, all these names or, 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 or uh, ideas or concepts were kind of held in the womb of God, if we can say such a thing. 
And out of uh, his tremendous compassion for them, he breathed them out. And by the way, those of you who know Arabic will know that the word for, Arab, uh, for, for mercy uh, in Arabic is rahma, and the word in Arabic for womb is rahim. Uh, and, and Ibn Arabi makes this uh, etymology, the rahmah, the, the, the compassion, is to do with a sort of holding within the womb, so with this uh, kind of analogy. So one, one can see the vision, the ethical vision, out of that goodness which is in the imprint of everything that is. So that one can say it in a very general way. But what I'd like to focus on here is uh, on a tradition which runs along uh, Sufi the Sufi tradition which is earlier to Ibn Arabi and is picked up by Ibn Arabi in a very interesting way. And this is the idea uh, which is known as Futuwa. Now, Futuwa um, usually is translated as chivalry. And it's quite a good translation because it is a name which is uh, constructed, uh, it's, a, it's an abs abstract name which is constructed on the, on the word fata, which means youth, young man. And uh, I won't go into the history it's in itself from, a, from the point of view of the social history of groups in Islam. The Futuwa is very, very interesting. But what it, uh, for our uh, interest, uh, what it really means that uh, in, say, 9th century onwards, there were groups in various places in the um, Islamic world, particularly in Khurasan, in the northeast of Iran, but not only there, where people practiced chivalry, but not in the sense of riding on horses and throwing whatever uh, uh, um, uh, knights throw, but in the sense of learning how to be with one another in a very particular way. And it was, it's very clear from m many writings that they, it's not just an ideal, it was also implemented in social groups, even to the point that some groups had their own clothing to identify them from other groups. But n that was not always the case. So uh, it's, um, it runs throughout the the history of Islam and particularly the history of uh, Islamic uh, mysticism. Now one of the principles, the ethical principles, which uh, the Fitian, those um, young men, those youth, um, tried to implement was something which is called in, in Arabic Ithar. And Ithar means giving precedence to the other. Uh, now, in itself, it sounds wonderful. I mean, here is a moral code, an ethical code, which means we have to learn to give precedence to the other. But you will see in a minute how unsimple it is, how complex, complex it can be. But I'll, uh, I want to start by telling you a little story which will highlight the important, importance of this Ithar uh, principle. 
And this is a story that is told. I found it in a compilation which is not very well known. Uh, it's from the 11th century. It's uh, by, I don't know if, if you have heard the name Khargushi. He was a contemporary of Sulamin, also from Nishapur, so very much in that kind of uh, uh, area. And he wrote a, a, a wonderful, lengthy compilation called Tahzib al-Asrar, which means something like the edification of the consciousness. And it's like you know about Risal al-Kushairiya, the, the, the Epistle of al-Kushairi, or Kitab al-Luma by Saraj. These are well-known compilations. But Khargushi but isn't well-known. But there are wonderful stuff there that I found. And I found also this story about a certain Muhammad ibn al-Faraji, who tells, uh, he, he apparently uh, lived in the 9th century in Ramla, uh, which is in Palestine. And he tells how he went out on a hajj one day, and he was practicing tawakkul. Now, tawakkul, you will know probably, is the uh, putting trust in God. Uh, but again, if you read the, the Sufi uh, textbooks, you will find that it's not just an ideal, it's, it's a practice. It's something that people did. And what did people do, people who wanted to practice tawakkul? They went out into the desert without food, without water, hoping for the best. And there are many stories around this, how, you know, Khidr came to them or, or somebody came to them and how miraculously they were given water and food and, and they survived. And sometimes they didn't survive, but they tried to practice tawakkul. So this man is telling, this uh, Muhammad ibn al-Faraji is telling this story that he is in the desert, he doesn't have food, he doesn't have water, he nearly dies, um, he doesn't have any strength, and there he sees from far, he sees two monks, two Christian monks, walking in the desert, light as anything, as if they were just came out of the, um, uh, of the monastery, um, and he asked them, where are you? Do you know where you are? And they say something like, we are in the kingdom of God. And um, where do you go? We go wherever he wants us to go. The monks tell this uh, Sufi. And can I join you? Um, and he, he says in the text, because he tells the story, he says, I felt very upset that here are two monks, two Christian monks, and they practice tawakkul so much better than I do, because I'm nearly dead and they walk so easily. So he asked them whether it's okay for him to, uh, to join them, and they say yes. So they walk along, they don't have any food, any water. In the evening, uh, one of the monks prays to God, and lo and behold, there's, there's food. And the other one digs a little bit in the sand, and lo and behold, there's water. So they eat and drink, and he prays. He does tayammum, because there isn't enough water, so he, he, he does the ablution by, uh, with, with sand, and all is well. Next day, next evening, the same thing happens. The, the other monk prays, and the first monk digs, and there is food and water. The third night, they say to him, now Muslim, you do the same. You, you pray to you, God, and you do the same. And he stays there, and he's ashamedly, and he prays to God, and he says, look, don't do it for me. 
Do it for yourself. You know, you can't allow these Christians to show that they have a better relationship with you than, than us. Uh, and, and yes, there's, uh, he prays and there's food and, uh, and there's water. But only in the amount that is sufficient for two people. And there are three. So he lets them have it. And so it goes on. And when his turn comes again, again there is food and water only for two people. And so they ask him, I mean, why don't you eat? I mean, there isn't enough food and why don't don't you eat? And he says, that's because our prophet was given a very special um, uh, aspect uh, or or, or practice. I don't remember exactly what the word that he uses. And this is ethar. So we were taught that giving precedence to the other is more important than tawakkul. Okay, so he explained to them that what was done to him, that there was enough water and and food only for two people, was meant for him to practice ithar rather than uh, tawakkul. So he gave them the precedence uh, to eat, which is very interesting. Now, of course, the story ends by these monks being very, very uh, touched by all this and saying, you know, we think that we ought to become Muslims. Uh, and and, and, and uh, do we have to go? And this is a Friday, and they ask, do we have to go and pray in the, in the mosque? And he says, preferably yes, but where is mosque? We are in the middle of the desert. And... A few steps, they walk, and they are in the outskirts of Jerusalem. Okay, so, you know, Bait al-Maqdis, as it says, and they go and pray, and they become good Muslims. So, um, in the literature, you, you have quite a few stories. No, this is very special, I think. But there are a few stories of the same, with the same, let's say, topos, you know, like the story... Uh, that you find in the uh, epistle of Al-Kushari, which is very well known and was very well known to uh, Ibn Arabi. There is the story uh, of an infidel, of a heathen that comes to Abraham uh, and he is tired and, uh, and hungry uh, and uh, Abraham, and he wants to, to get hospitality from Abraham. And Abraham says to him, not unless you become a Muslim. Abraham, of course, being the first uh, Muslim, yeah? And uh, then this uh, pagan goes away because he doesn't want conditions. And when he goes away, God reveals himself to Abraham and says to him, Look, I have nursed and nurtured this heathen or this pagan for all his life until now, and you refuse to give him food? So he runs after him and he take, brings him back. And of course, also here the punchline is that the heathen is so much taken by the hospitality and all that, that he becomes a Muslim. So it is a topos. But at the same time, the topos is not really the point of the topos, as far as I understand, uh, the, the, this recurring motif is not just about telling how people converted to Islam, but to put the finger on something essentially important in Islam, according to the concept of the writers, 
um, which is more than anything else, it has to do with some ethical practices, whether it is uh, ithar or hospitality or things like that. So this is very much at the, at the background of um, what I want to say. Now I have to tie it in with uh, Ibn Arabi. Now Ibn Arabi in the Futuhat has got several chapters about Futuwa. He has one chapter, uh, I'll tell you the number of the chapter in a minute because uh, I don't remember it by heart. Uh, he has one chapter when he talks about the, the Futuwa and, 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 uh, and its place uh, and the place of the Fityan, this chivalrous one, in um, the hierarchy of, you know, because he has, people ask today about hierarchy, he has the notion of hierarchy. People are arranged according to maratib, according to um, grades, okay? So he talks, he has a chapter where he talks about this fityan, this uh, chivalrous one, in terms of the place in the um, human scale. Uh, he also talks about futuwa um, in the futuhat when he goes into details about the different makamat, you know, these stations on, on the path. And there, it's there that things become interesting, but we'll do it step by step. Now, um, I start now with, I have to start with telling a story, again a story, which comes in the epistle of Al-Kushairi. Now, I said before, kind of, uh, uh, passing that uh, Ibn Arabi uh, knew the Risala. He didn't only know the Risala. It's very clear that he absorbed the Risala because some of the chapters in the Futuhat are arranged exactly in the way that chapters are arranged in the Risala. Uh, so that's interesting. But why do I say it? Because of something that we can call intertextuality. The fact I find Ibn Arabi a chatterbox. He always chats. He really he talks a lot. And sometimes he chats also with authors who lived before him or with the books. So he will do this chatting. He, he, and, and we can call it in a sort of a highbrow uh, academic language as intertextuality. So here's the story that comes from Al-Kushairi, but is taken up by Ibn Arabi. And the story has to do with, again, with Fityan, with these people who exercise Futuwa, okay? And a few of them, of this group of Fityan, come um, to um, a certain house, and they expect to have uh, hospitality there. Now, uh, the man, um, who the host, tells his servant, set the table for these people. And the servant differs. He doesn't do it straight away. Now, uh, the man and also the guests ask, why did you not set the table? You know, why here are the guests, they are waiting, and you have done nothing. And he says, there were ants on the table. Now, 
from the principles of Futua, I cannot harm the ants. But at the same time, I cannot lay a table for these guests where there are ants. So I had to wait until the ants crawled away. And now I can lay the table for the guests. Now both the host and the guests said, well done to the young men. But they didn't only say, well done. They used a word, a verb in Arabic, which is dakakta, which can be understood as you have examined the, inst the, 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 the situation properly. Okay, so you have weighed the situation, you have examined the situation, and, and, and you have done well. Okay, now, Ibn Arabi takes this story up, uh, and first he does it in chapter 42 of the Futuhat al-Makiyah. And this chapter is uh, titled, On the Knowledge of Futuwa and the Fityan, the ranks and classes and the secrets of their pose. I mean, they also have these very central figures of pose. And here Ibn Arabi alludes to this story that I have just told you and comments on it. His comments, as always, are intriguing and challenging. And here's what he says. The chivalrous one is at all times in the service of the other. As the prophet has said, the servant of a people is its leader. So this is a hadith. He whose service is his leadership is a true and faithful servant of God. The Fityan prefer to implement the Futuwa towards the weakest ones in accordance with the weakness in relation to God. The most superior Futuwa is therefore that which is exercised towards the weakest ones from one aspect or another. This is like the case of the man whose sheikh ordered him to set a table for his guests. But because of ants that were on the table, the man dithered, for he considered chasing the ants away something that went against the principles of Futuwa, as Futuwa should be exercised also towards animals. He therefore waited until the ants crawled away without him doing anything in order to chase them away by force. For the Fityan never act by force except towards themselves. Try to remember that because this will come again. The Fityan never act by force except towards themselves. He who does not possess strength is no fata. Fata, namely this chivalrous one. Inasmuch as he who does not possess power does not possess leniency. So you have to be strong in order to be lenient. 
His sheikh said to him, you have considered the matter accurately, the kakta, and have done well. For by your futuwa, you defended the weakest ones. However, adds Ibn Arabi, by dithering in setting the table for the guests, this man did not exercise futuwa towards the guests. Now, what does Ibn Arabi mean by inserting this addendum? He makes us aware, or at least he wants us to become aware of the dialectics of Futuwa. It's all well and fine to praise the man for being so extraordinarily attentive and caring towards the little creatures which were crawling on the table. But while doing so, he had neglected the guests. In other words, ethical values are never simple solutions to situations in which one should consider another. They always demand a kind of fine evaluation and discrimination. Tadqiq, this is the daqakta. And in the end, regardless of this discrimination, Exercising futuwa for the one is always at the expense of another. This is not easy, but it's important. So when we talk of the other, it always demands of us to look at, or at least to be aware of, several different others and try and work out our system of evaluating according to more specific and perhaps finer values. See, in, if you remember, Ibn Arabi explains when he wants to defend this, seemingly to defend the act of the, 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 the servant, he says, because the ants are very weak and you should practice futuwa towards the weakest. So if he evaluated ants vis-a-vis Guests, of course, the guests could wait. No, they will not die of, of this hunger. But the ants are weak creatures, and if he chased them away, they would be abolished or eliminated. So that's that's uh, the positive side of it. Um, this can surely start off a very interesting debate, especially in our day and age culture which tends to be very one-pointed and rather simplistic in its evaluation. One can think, for example, of the aggressive activities of those who battle against cruelty towards animal or against abortions, etc. You know, on the one hand side, they don't want, uh, they, 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 they battle against uh, um, the animals who go through torture in laboratories, but uh, some of them can be very aggressive in their uh, behavior. Recently, in Israel, people have become engaged in a heated debate regarding limb transplantation and the point at which one person may be decreed dead and another person being revived and saved by having a limb transplantation from the dead donor. At, at what point, you know, there, there, is a, there is a law that they want to 
put forward in the Knesset, which says that there is a situation, there is a there is a moment when the brain dies, w that we should decide that this particular person is dead, and then we can take the limbs and transplant it to, to somebody who is very, very ill and needs this, uh, this uh, transplantation. But no, not everybody agrees, okay? And this is an ethical question, philosophical, ethical, religious, and so on and on. It's worthwhile noting the verb which I have translated, you have considered the matter accurately, the kokta. This verb, in fact, is, taking, is taken from the original account given by Kushari. It seems to imply that among the Fitian, the rules of Futuwa were applied after an examination of the situation. So it's not something that should be practiced offhandedly. You know, one has to consider the situation. Namely, the man was applauded by the host and by the guests, not only for doing what he did as a matter of fact and out of blind obedience, but also and especially for weighing the ethical implications of the choice, of the choice which he had to make. This choice seems to hinge on the principle that in case of a choice being made, one has to exercise futua towards the weakest party, in our case, the ants. But Ibn Arabi is not satisfied. He comes back more openly to this incident in chapter 147 of the Futuhat, which he titles on the knowledge of the station of abandoning Futuwa and its secrets, Tark el-Futuwa. The series of chapters on various stations, Makamat, in the Futuhat, is built upon the dialectics of presenting each Makam positively and then presenting the rather more superior station of abandoning this Makam. So you have, from chapter 100-something, you have chapters in the Futuhat which hinge around the maqamat, the stations. So let's say maqam et tawakkul, and it is followed by a chapter which is maqam tark et tawakkul. Maqam is zuhud, aestheticism, you know, and it is followed by a chapter maqam tark et zuhud. That's Ibn Arabic when there's not just one thing, there's always the two sides of a thing. And the same he does with regards to Futuwa. There's a chapter, Makam el-Futuwa, and following it, there's a chapter, Makam Tark el-Futuwa. And the, and the Tark, the abandoning, is, in his opinion, more elevated. Because you cannot exercise or practice the Tark, the abandoning, before you had to practice the positive. But once you've practiced the positive, make sure that you are not stuck there. Think about the implication of the abandoning of this maqam. And that's very interesting, and it's a feature of Ibn Arabi. So um, this uh, chapter 147, the 4, is the antithesis of chapter 146, 
titled on the knowledge of the station of Futuwa and its secrets. Okay. One should emphasize that Ibn Arabi's idea is not to negate and annul the one maqam by the antithetical position, but to point out that everything, including spiritual states and stations, as well as ethical principles, should be always viewed dialectically. In chapter 147, then, he takes up our story again, and focusing this time on the verb dakakta, he says, the sheikh said to the dithering disciple, indeed, you did examine it carefully, making this act of careful examination part of the issue of futua. Well, there are two voices here. Maybe I should read it again. The sheikh said, indeed, you did examine it carefully. And now Ibn Arabi says, that means that the sheikh included this careful examination within the whole topic of futuwa. You cannot do futuwa without thinking about what you are doing, without examining it. Well said. Where one to ask, now, where one to ask this sheikh, what do you mean when you witness in his action a careful examination and praise him for it? while at the same time the guests are painfully experiencing a delay in the hospitality. Then he comes to this question, you know, how do you weigh the situation? Surely caring for the guests is more appropriate than caring for the ants. Now, if the sheikh replies, the ants are closer to God, due to their obedience to him, whereas man, at times, in situations from which he doesn't derive pleasure, is found to be hostile to God in his commandments. To this, we say, you see, I mean, this, this is a concept which is, uh, which is called from a kind of, let's say, not even Arabic perception, but an Islamic perception. The ants are so are so weak uh, that they cannot, uh, uh, they cannot protest, they cannot object, they are obedient. So they are nearer to God than these guests. Um, to this we say, and what about man's skin, his limbs, his hair, his flesh, do not they speak in praise of God as do the ants? Hence, as God said, these parts will witness against the rational, non-faithful, God-opposing soul on the day of resurrection. Because it says in the Quran, Surah 41, verse 21, they will tell their skins, why have you witnessed against us? Now, what is the situation here? The situation is, it's the day of resurrection, people are judged, and they say, we have not done anything wrong, and who witnessed against them? The skin. And, the, and, and this is in the Quran, and, and people say, they tell the skins, why have you witnessed against us? And also, when he gives another uh, verse, uh, verse 23, 
24, from Surah 24, on the day when the tongues, hands, and feet will testify against them. Are these not legitimate witnesses whose witnessing is accepted? It would have behooved the sheikh and his servants to look after the guests first, since the law stipulates that one must not neglect preparing a meal for them. If the servant had exercised true futua, he should have left the table to the ants. He should have asked the permission of the sheikh to set another table for them. He should have confronted, conferred uh, uh, with his, uh, with his uh, uh, master about the matter and should have looked into an, another arrangement for the guests, which would, this would then be nobler and better examined futua. Okay, so, I, I mean, you can understand that uh, if we had time, we could go into, into uh, the whole matter with great uh, detail, you know. I mean, here's Ibn Arabi putting his attention not only to men in, the, in capital M, but to his skin, to his feet, to his hands, to his flesh. These are also entities. And they are entities. They are part of the whole. And so they have to be considered too, in as much as the ants have to be considered. Now in this case, what, the, what he wants to say is, look, I mean, uh, the, 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 uh, pe these people that you have neglected preparing a meal for, in the end, their skin, their flesh, they, they will testify against you, you know. The idea that not only the human being as a whole, but also his skin and his bodily organs are entities in their own right, is born by Ibn Arabi's seminal concept of the special face, al-wajhul khas. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm going behind. Okay, shall I? Yes. According to this, al-wajhul khas, the special face thing, each and every entity is distinguished from any other entity. All have the separate, particular place within the whole. Dialectical to the core, this means that inasmuch as Ibn Arabi's view is holistic, and some would say monistic or pantheistic, inasmuch as he sees existence as a whole, as a seamless unity, it should be also said that according to his view, this unity is meaningless were it not for the myriad forms which it contains within itself, whether animate, inanimate, physical, spiritual, lowly, or noble. Everything has its own place and its special face, but no one but God knows what, how, and where everything is in the general scheme of things. Thus Moses didn't know the special face of Khidr, nor did Khidr know the special face of Moses. This is in chapter 396. This special face, writes Ibn Arabi, stems from the divine mercy, which establishes this as the special and unique link between God and all and every existent, be it a Moses, a Khidr, a stone, a plant, or a planet, or an ant. 
God's ultimate protection given to any person, be he an angel, a prophet, or a holy man, is to place him according to the special face given to him and to him alone, not upon the face of any other. There is not a created thing which does not have a special face by which God makes it know many things, even though this thing may not know by which way the knowledge has come to it. Um, and, and so on and so forth. There are kind of interesting um, um, analogy that he makes here, but I will skip because I do want to come to um, something that I brought in the end. It is this specific otherness of everything born by the divine mercy and particular protection which underlies a curious confessional peace that Ibn Arabi writes in his autobiographical Risalat Ruh al-Quds and which brings us back in a roundabout and topsy-turvy way to the issue of Futua and Isar. In this piece from which I'm citing a short, um, from which I'm citing a short passage only, Ibn Arabi talked to himself. Now the nafs is one's ego, one's, I don't know, essence. But no, it's also an entity in its own right. And he talks to it and he says, No, O nafs. By the way, you probably know that nafs is kind of not a very good thing in the Sufi tradition. Know, O nafs, that when the knower, such as al-Hallaj, is the possessor of mystical states, he discriminates between his self and the selves of others. He treats his self harshly, severely, forcefully, whereas the selves of others he treats with altruism, isar, mercy and compassion. But when the knower is the possessor of stability and has resilience and strength, then his self becomes estranged to him. And he does not discriminate between her and the selves of others. Therefore, he treats his own self with the same mercy and compassion that he treats the selves of others, as it has become a stranger to him. He has risen upwards while she, the self, has remained on earth with her kind. Hence, he resolves to be kind towards her in the same way that he has resolved to be kind towards the selves of others. I'll stop here. <laughs>